Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, sex work, and drug use. We advise caution for children under the age of 13. When you think of vicious criminal underworlds, you probably picture mobsters. Al Capone in Chicago and the five families in New York. Both valid responses, to be sure. But I'll bet you don't think of the harbor views of Sydney, Australia. Not the Aussies, right? Well, in 1950, one journalist wrote, Sydney has an underworld that puts anything I've seen in London, New York, Paris, or even Marseille in the shade. Its sordid, lawless east is more dangerous than the jungle after dark. But if that's true, then how did Sydney get to be that way? What made the place so ruthless? Well, I'd argue that at least part of the blame goes to three specific laws that kind of changed everything, and the two women who twisted those laws to their advantage. These women basically created organized crime in Australia and waged a bloody, ruthless war while they did it. So now, if you're ready, let's dive into it. This is Sex, Drugs, and Sly Grog, Sydney's Razor Wars. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is the show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. This week, we're beginning a three-part series on Kate Lee, Tilly Devine, and the Razor Wars of the 1920s and 30s. Today, we'll take a look at Kate's early life in the country and see her not so much tumble into a life of crime as bound. Then we'll watch Kate take advantage of a new law, turning herself into an accidental crime boss and semi-celebrity. Next week, we'll meet Tilly Devine, who came to Sydney determined to be and have the very best, and did so by working in the world's oldest profession. The final episode of this series is when things will really come to a head. By the end of the 1920s, Kate and Tilly were dueling queens of vice in Sydney. And with personalities as big as their empires, there wasn't enough room for both of them in the harbor city. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. 
cake, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. At the end of this story, I'm going to tell you that Kate Lee died penniless and alone. The reason I'm telling you that now is because I think that's what Kate herself would have wanted. She always warned people away from a life of crime. It's not worth the trouble, love, she'd say. Not unless you haven't got no other choice. Exactly when she started telling people that is unclear, but I'll bet she did it more often the older she got. Once almost everyone she knew from her old life was dead and gone, Kate might have looked back and wondered what it had all been for. But then, as she thought about it, all the furs, the jewels, the fun, I like to imagine a mischievous smile would have spread across her wizened, battle-scarred face. Her life hadn't been so bad, not really. But as much life as Kate lived, as high as she rose, things started out simply enough. She was born in 1881 in Dubbo, New South Wales, the same year the town got its first train station. Kathleen Mary Josephine Bean, she was christened, but her family just called her Bonnie. Growing up with 12 siblings, Kate might have felt she was in danger of being overlooked, which could explain why she was so wild. She was cheeky and acted out in a way not becoming of young ladies back then. Her parents warned her that she'd end up in the local jail if she didn't mend her ways, perhaps thinking they'd scare her straight, turn her into a pious, straight-laced lass. But the thing was, Kate loved the Dubbo jail. What exactly drew her to the imposing brick structure, I'm not sure, but perhaps it was her parents' scolding that first brought it to her notice. Then again, it's entirely possible she felt an early kinship with the darker side of life. Maybe, like so many of us, she felt drawn to the macabre, to look across the line between right and wrong, eager to hear stories about the people who crossed the threshold, the true crime of it all. Before we continue with Kate's psychology, please keep in mind that I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we've done a lot of research for this show. When looking at Kate's life, historian Dr. Lee Straw points out that crime can elicit feelings of pleasure and excitement as much as fear and horror. This is called amoral delight, which is exactly what it sounds like, taking pleasure in the thought or act of something that everyone tells you is naughty. Perhaps it was a fascination with wickedness that kept Kate's young mind fixated on the local jail. So although the Beans hoped the threat of going to jail would convince their daughter to behave, you and I both know that's not how Kate's story went. As young as eight, she was stealing from her parents, her siblings, even local shops. She also had a nasty tendency to hit the other kids at school, so no one really minded when she blew off her lessons, which was a lot. Of course, Kate didn't get away with all that. Her father, a struggling cobbler and occasional horse trainer, beat her when she misbehaved. When that didn't work, he sent her to bed without supper. But instead of bending to her father's will, Kate only seemed to get more rebellious. Exactly why she ran away when she was 10 is anyone's guess, but that seems to be what happened. Sometime after that, she was sent to the Parramatta Girls' Home, a reformatory and industrial school over 200 miles away from Dubbo. 
the school didn't offer much in the way of formal education and opted instead to train pupils in the skills needed to be a domestic servant or other roles befitting a woman. They'd take in wayward lasses and churn out young, obedient women ready to contribute to society. Well, that was the idea, anyhow. Four years at Parramatta did nothing to dim Kate's fire. She was released from the school and headed for Sydney, where she picked up some factory work and waitressing gigs in the suburbs of Surrey Hills and Glebe. Kate liked to hang out with other people who, like her, didn't pay much attention to the rules. Sexually precocious, author Larry Ryder called her, though back then that idea was even more offensive than it might sound today. Still, it wasn't her, quote, loose morals that earned Kate her first criminal conviction. No, her first brush with the law was for the crime of vagrancy in 1901, which basically meant she was punished for being homeless and seemingly unemployed. She was sentenced to 14 days hard labor, but the punishment, like always, did nothing to change Kate. She wasn't so stubborn that she couldn't have her head turned, though. Around the turn of the century, she fell in love with a carpenter and petty crook by the name of Jack Lee. They married in 1902, when Kate was 21. He was 10 years her senior, but everyone knows that age is just a number, right? I'd tell you about their marriage, but the truth is that most of it's a mystery. We know they lived together in a flat in Glebe, and that they had a daughter together, who they named Eileen. We also know that things got messy in 1905. That year, Jack was charged with assault and robbery over an incident with their landlord. At trial, Kate insisted that her husband hadn't thrown hands because he wanted to rob the man, but because he was jealous. She explained that she'd been in bed with the landlord, but only because she was trying to get a better deal on their rent. Her husband worked so hard, and she was just trying to do her part to help out. It wasn't Jack's fault that she inspired him to violence. Unfortunately, no one believed the story, and Jack was sentenced to five years in Darlinghurst jail. Kate narrowly avoided jail time over the perjury, but didn't hold on to her marriage. The Lees eventually went their separate ways. Now, you know I'm not one to define a woman's life purely by her romantic pursuits, but the next few years of Kate's life are largely unremarkable, and we want to get to the good stuff, so we'll blow right by some minor legal troubles over foul language, running a brothel or two, and those times when she performed sex work herself. Instead, we'll catch up to Kate in 1913. By then, she was making all of her money through illicit means, and was something of a hot commodity among the men in Sydney's criminal circles. She was attractive, with a petite frame and wavy brown hair that she wore in a bun, and she always, always finished her ensemble with a large hat adorned with ostrich feathers. Back then, they'd have called her face handsome, which sounds like a read if you ask me, but I'm sure it was well meant. Besides her rockin' bod and inviting brown eyes, Kate had plenty else going for her. She brought a certain enthusiasm to the bedroom that men definitely loved, and she brought home enough dosh to make her a worthy partner for any crook. Mostly, she stole and fenced, turning a tidy profit for her troubles, but she didn't turn her nose up at much, to be honest. Perhaps most useful of all, though, was Kate's willingness to provide false alibis in court. 
She'd tried it with her first husband, Jack, and although it hadn't worked as planned, she certainly wasn't a quitter. Kate was always happy to try, try again. That might be what made her so attractive to 'er ne'er-do-well Samuel Freeman. The pair took up together around the beginning of 1914, and it wasn't long before he needed her silver tongue to help him out of a bind. Only the next time she lied for her man, Kate wasn't going to get away with it. Coming up, jail time, a convent, and the rise of Sly Grog. The world is full of con men, fantasists, and corrupt authority figures. There are respected spiritual leaders who ask way too much of their followers, global companies with unexpected motives, and governments that value profit over all else. Luckily for us, the world is also full of people who stand up for what they believe in, even if it turns their lives upside down. I'm Pat Rodriguez, host of Whistleblowers, the new podcast series that explores the biggest, most bizarre lies in history through the eyes of those who risked absolutely everything to expose them. This season in Whistleblowers, Join us as we uncover the story of the women who brought down Hollywood's most controversial yoga guru. The doctors who believe one of the world's top surgeons used humans as his guinea pigs. And the woman who revealed Facebook's darkest secrets. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original from Parcast. Airing episodes every Tuesday starting January 18th. Follow and listen to Whistleblowers for free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, on with the story. In 1914, 33-year-old Kate Lee moved in with her boyfriend, Samuel Freeman, bringing her daughter Eileen with her. They were neither of them big-time crooks, but they made enough money criming to get by. Of course, like any career, the money only comes if you keep at it. So in June of that year, Freeman and some of his associates carried out Australia's first armed robbery using a getaway car, making off with over 3,000 pounds. That same month, Freeman shot a night watchman at a Sydney post office. In all, an ambitious few weeks for the wannabe gangster, but one that proved costly. He was arrested for both crimes and a few months later faced life in prison. Well, Kate wasn't having that, so she boldly took to the stand to defend her lover. Freeman, she declared, couldn't have shot anyone. He was with her the whole time. 
first at a skating rink and then at home. To make sure the lie held up this time, she figured she needed someone to corroborate her story in court. Kate decided that her roommate, Raymond Moore, was the one to do it, but he needed some convincing. According to Moore, Kate came at him with a tomahawk and threatened to cut his head off if he didn't back her up. It might not have been a great plan, but it gives us an idea of the kind of person Kate was. Reckless, impulsive, and loyal to a fault. And to her credit, she managed to convince at least a few people she was telling the truth. The Sydney Morning Herald wrote that Kate should be believed because she so willingly impugned her own virtue. Surely an unmarried woman wouldn't admit that she was sleeping with a man unless it was true. Of course, it wasn't true. And not only did the court see through Kate's phony alibi, she was also hauled up on a perjury charge. In the end, Freeman was sentenced to 10 years. For her feckless attempt to defend him, Kate was given seven. She'd tried so hard to get it right, to outwit the system for her lover, and it had blown up in her face. Well, never again, she thought, never again. According to some reports, when the sentence was handed down, she said, seven years for sticking to a man. I'll swing before I stick to another. It was, on the whole, a bold oath to make, but it wasn't going to help her get out of the mess she'd made for herself. So in early 1915, Kate sent her teenage daughter to a convent and reported to the female reformatory at Long Bay Jail. It wasn't the Dubbo jail her parents tried to scare her with as a young girl, but their prediction had, in a roundabout way, come true. Kate's wild ways had earned her a prison cot of her very own. Now, she just had to lie in it. Well, that and some other stuff. Behind Long Bay's sturdy walls, Kate enjoyed a forced exercise regimen, cold showers, and had to work in the kitchen. She was also required at all times to be bright and cheerful, exhibit self-control, and treat fellow inmates with politeness and decorum. After all, this was a woman's jail. Criminals or not, they were expected to be ladies. As far as prison experiences go, it definitely could have been worse. But all good things, as they say, end in parole. So in 1919, having served just under five years, Kate walked out of Long Bay ready to start anew. The thing was, the Sydney she came back to was pretty different from the one she'd left. It was just a little bit drier. Now, to be fair, the temperance movement had been gaining ground in Australia for some time before Kate went to jail. But in 1916, agitators scored their first big win. And here's the first of those game-changing laws I mentioned earlier. Beginning that year, pubs in New South Wales were forced to close at 6 p.m. instead of the usual last call closer to midnight. Sure, the move wasn't quite as restrictive as the prohibition laws of the United States, but Australia was, and still is, a country where drinking is an intrinsic part of the culture. So making it harder for a bloke to have a beer at the end of the day was just downright un-Australian. Alcohol was still allowed in Australia, you just couldn't buy it after six o'clock. That time limit meant that workers rushed to their local pub as soon as they knocked off work and proceeded to drink as much as they could before closing time. Publicans would shout, 
If you can't drink them, leave them. If you can't leave them, drink them. They called it the six o'clock swill. It seems that the new law, which was intended to curb drinking in the city, had the opposite effect, in that it encouraged people to drink more than they would have otherwise. This might have been thanks to something called reactance. In psychological terms, that's a motivation to regain freedom once it's been lost or threatened. Put more simply, it's when you want to do something simply because you were told not to. It's the whole idea of forbidden fruit. No matter who tells you not to eat it, you're going to want just a taste, right? Telling someone they're not allowed to do something, end of story, no questions asked, is possibly the worst way to actually restrict behavior. Dr. Suzanne Deggs-White at Northern Illinois University explains that the more we try to ignore or not think about something, the more likely thoughts of those things are going to run through our brains. So even if people intended to follow the rules, they might have felt their minds uncontrollably drawn back to thoughts of a post-work drink. And eventually, some of those people were going to follow those forbidden desires to the bottom of a beer glass. Besides creating an excess of drunk men wandering Sydney's streets at sundown each night, the six o'clock swill also proved one very important point. Aussies weren't going to be browbeaten into drinking less. It was a textbook case of supply and demand, in that Sydney ciders demanded that someone supply them with alcohol. Which brings us to the rise of what's known as sly grog. Basically, that's alcohol, grog, sold in secret, on the sly. So they were kind of like the speakeasies of America's Prohibition era, except that the concept of a sly grog shop had actually been around since the early 1800s. Because even without laws restricting their trade, there were never enough pubs in Australia. So it wasn't an entirely new concept, but one that definitely grew in popularity after 1916. With all the usual sellers forced to close early, enterprising rule breakers started catering to their thirsty countrymen. Sly grog shops sprang up across Sydney in the back rooms of existing stores, inside residential homes, or just on a card table on the street corner. In other words, the law had created an entire new industry just ripe for criminals to sink their teeth into, setting the stage for, well, a bit of a nightmare, really. But we'll get into that a little later. Let's go back to Kate. When she got out of jail in 1919, the new pub restrictions were big news. Not that Kate really cared about when or where she could drink. She hated the taste of alcohol, never touched the stuff. But Kate didn't need to be a drinker to see that there was money to be made. And with the amount that Australians like to drink, a woman could get very rich in a hurry if she played her cards right. So in a very seize the day kind of moment, Kate sat down to deal herself in. By this stage, she was around 38 years old. And despite the fact that steady employment had never really been her thing, she'd managed to squirrel away a little nest egg. And it was enough to invest in a sly grog shop of her very own. Actually, it was enough for six. Kate sniffed out business owners who were amenable to a symbiotic relationship. Eventually, she found and rented six back rooms in fruit shops, grocers, and even a few residential terraces, each of them prime real estate, at least for her purposes. 
Now, I don't know how many of her landlords knew what Kate planned to do with her rented rooms. Maybe she fed them a story about some made-up legitimate business. Then again, given what we know about Kate's temperament, it's possible she threatened her new business partners. Keep your mouth shut if you know what's good for you. But I think the most likely explanation is that Kate paid these people for their silence. Whether it was in pounds or pints, I'm willing to bet that she greased more than a few palms whenever she set up a new shop. It was the beginning of a new kind of crime, pay to play. And Kate Lee was about to prove she was one of the best in the game. Coming up, Kate Lee becomes the Sly Grog Queen of Sydney. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now let's get back to the story. As the 1920s dawned, Kate Lee was determined to make a healthy living with her new Sly Grog enterprise. She had several premises around the Sydney suburb of Surrey Hills, six back rooms for punters to come and enjoy a drink at any time of night. To hell with the temperance churchies and their laws. Now, Kate wasn't the only one flouting the restrictions on the sale of alcohol in New South Wales. Far from it, actually. But she was different from many of her competitors in a lot of ways. Across the board, Slygroggers varied in the quality of booze they sold. At the lower end of things, you had the guys offering unmarked bottles of watered-down beer, gin, or whiskey off of trestle tables on the street. Cut-rate booze for cut-rate prices. It wasn't anything flash, but their stuff scratched the itch. However, you took the risk of a copper showing up mid-transaction and landing everyone involved in hot water. At the opposite end of the scale, you had the classier, safer establishments, the ones Kate owned. Her shops had couches, gramophones, card tables, luxuries that elevated her business and gave everything a bit of a fancy vibe. They were the details that made her shops the places to be throughout the early 1920s. To go with the surrounds, she sold good quality grog that she sourced from legitimate pubs or direct from the suppliers. That top shelf stuff came with top shelf prices. Kate marked her drinks up as much as 100%, which netted her a tidy profit. But with money rolling in, the dangers of Sydney's criminal underworld only increased. See, Kate already had to pay off some of the cops who patrolled Surrey Hills. She'd slide them a few bob or sling them a bottle of something to make sure they looked the other way. But police weren't the only unwelcome visitors who came around Sydney's Slygrog shops. With organized crime becoming more of a thing, 
other groups saw a different opportunity to make money, these goons passed themselves off as protectors. In exchange for a cut of your profits, they offered a certain amount of muscle to scare away anyone who might want to cause trouble at your establishment. You might know this kind of setup as protection racketeering, but in Australia, they called them standover men. And these witless thugs were the ones causing most of the trouble, refused to pay for their services, and they'd roughhouse your customers, start fights, trash your premises, or sometimes they'd just set fires. And because their targets were other criminals, standover gangs had no reason to fear the police. It's not like a sly grogger or sex worker could lodge a complaint if and when they fell prey to the sharks. So dealing with that kind of extortion was just a part of the game. Like I said earlier, pay to play. Except Kate Lee, ever a wild child, didn't play by other people's rules, not when she could help it at least. And to be clear, Kate had no trouble looking after herself, or other people for that matter, whoever they were. It's something she was famous for. Her big heart and protective nature even extended to the local police, who you would think she'd have no time for. But that wasn't Kate. It seems she had an enduring respect for the cops who patrolled her city's streets and wouldn't stand for anyone messing with them. One day, a newer officer was patrolling the area. A group of young thugs grabbed hold of the copper and started giving him a hard time. Luckily for the lawman, he was just steps from one of Kate Lee's Slygrog shops. Before things got too out of hand, she appeared on the scene, gun-toting and trigger-happy. She told the young men that if they didn't let the cop go, she'd shoot the lot of them. Looking back on the incident, another officer said, she saved that young man's life. But Kate couldn't be everywhere at once. She might have been tough as nails, but she couldn't stare down every crook in Surrey Hills. So she hired her own protection for her shops. It wasn't cheap, but having loyal henchmen and guards on the payroll was better for the bottom line than dealing with the gangs who caused most of the problems in the first place. People knew that a drink at Mum's, which is what everyone called Kate Lee's shops, was more likely to be free of violence and police raids than a lesser establishment. So besides saving money, it was good for business. And over time, that business grew. Her empire expanded, and at the height of her career, such as it was, Kate ran around 20 slygrog shops throughout Sydney. According to Larry Ryder, men lined up, waiting to get into Kate's parlors. They were always welcome to sit and enjoy a drink right there at the makeshift bar, or they could brown bag their bottle to take home. Some of Kate's shops, like the upscale places I mentioned earlier, catered to businessmen, about as genteel a customer you could expect to meet when buying an illegal pint. Other, less extravagant spots were perfect for the kinds of people who businessmen wouldn't like to be rubbing shoulders with, common thieves and sex workers mostly. Of course, Kate didn't discriminate when it came to clientele. As long as they paid, they were welcome at mums. That attitude made Kate comfortably wealthy as the 1920s rolled on. And she was the kind of woman who wanted you to know she had money. She started dressing in beautiful furs and flashy jewels. She also had an entrepreneurial spirit, and it inspired her to branch out into new ventures. After all, it was the Roaring Twenties, and people were in the mood to party after the hell of World War I. 
Along with Sly Grog, one of the things that facilitated that festive atmosphere was Sydney's party drug du jour, cocaine. Snow, locals called it, and it was enjoyed by everyone, from wealthy socialites and high-flying business types to mobsters, sex workers, and everyday folk just wanting to see what the fuss was all about. We'll get into this a bit more next time, but suffice it to say, coke was all the rage in 1920s Sydney. So, of course, Kate wanted in on the action. There's not a lot of information out there about Kate's dealings in Sydney's drug trade, but for a while, she was known as the Snow Queen. So, yeah, I'd say she did all right at that, too. But that wasn't all. Kate also did a great trade in stolen property. She'd been making dough as a fencer for years. It was never her chief source of income, but it was always good for a little pocket money. Thieves came to her with their hauls, and she'd mark it up and move it out, turning other people's hard work into easy money. With so much success thanks to so much criming, Kate eventually earned herself quite a reputation. Everyone knew who she was, that she was rich, that she sold Slygrog, and that messing with her wasn't a good idea. And I'm pretty sure she liked it that way, to be honest. She'd undoubtedly had run-ins with the law since her parole in 1919. But as far as we can tell, she typically paid a small fine, maybe spent a few nights behind bars, and then got right back to business. Interestingly, Kate liked spending time in the courtroom, even when she wasn't the one up on charges. She loved attending criminal trials, sitting in the front row and peeling vegetables for her dinner as she heckled just about anyone in the room. She'd loudly comment on the defendant's chances or weigh in on whether or not a witness was telling the truth. And she was honestly pretty funny, a real Aussie larrikin if there ever was one. Though every now and then, the magistrate would have her ejected, much to everyone's dismay. But it wasn't all fun and games for the city's flamboyant vice queen. Some local papers dubbed her the most evil woman in Sydney. And it seems like she earned that particular honor thanks to her role in the booming drug trade, which was far less palatable than her sly grog business. That might seem like a puzzling distinction, but according to historian Dr. Lee Straw, Criminality becomes celebrated when the crime type is acceptable and of interest, and the context, time, and image of the criminal resonates with the public. Like Robin Hood, his crimes are celebrated because they help the little guy. To everyday working-class people, Kate's efforts to bring Sly Grog to Sydneysiders was heroic. After all, drinking was an integral part of Aussie culture. But on the flip side, many couldn't ignore that Kate was also a drug peddler. She sidled up to working girls and invited them to try a bump of cocaine. It was a great way to get through a night's work after all. It was this side of Kate's dealings that really sullied her reputation. Mum took care of her clients, but the Snow Queen? She took advantage of them. And that's the picture many newspaper editors painted. To them, Kate was a figure of utmost corruption. Then again, maybe the papers secretly relished Kate's antics. They definitely sold plenty of papers, and she wasn't the only one who made headlines throughout the 1920s. Sure, Kate Lee was a capital B, big name in Australia's organized crime world, but there were others just as big. 
Sydney was a sizable city, and Sly Grog wasn't the only game in town. For example, someone had to look after the women supporting themselves through sex work. And thanks to a weird legal quirk, the only person that could be was a woman. Which brings us to the second protagonist of this tale, Tilly Devine. Like Kate, she wasn't content to take orders from anyone. And no matter how much the public loved Mum, Tilly was determined to be the reigning vice queen of Sydney. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week to meet the young woman destined to become Kate Lee's fiercest rival. We'll watch as Tilly Devine ascends the throne in her own right, setting the stage for a fierce, bloody war across Sydney. For more information on Kate Lee, we found Underbelly, Razor, Tilly Devine, Kate Lee, and the Razor Gangs by Larry Ryder, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Joel Callen, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 